0: Well, if you have a Bible with you, we are in Acts chapter 27. Acts 27, we're gonna cover the whole chapter. I want you to look at the person next to you and say, the whole chapter. That's it, now you're ready. The whole chapter, we're doing it. I figured Pat Hamblin, our chairman of our elder board, covered two chapters this summer, so I'm just shortening it a little bit to one chapter uh, for this sermon. But it's the story of the shipwreck as Paul is heading to uh, Rome from uh, Caesarea, from Italy, I mean from Israel to Italy in Rome, and so this chapter covers that entire story, and so I'm kind to kind of skim across the top, hit a few things here and there, and then we'll spend a little bit more time on a certain portion of the chapter, but the title uh, for the sermon is An Anchor in the Storm, An Anchor in the Storm, and I won't read the whole chapter up front, we'll just kind of hit it along the way as we go, so why don't we pray, prepare our hearts, and then we'll jump into our time here. Here together, Father, thank you for the opportunity to, to know that Christ is our anchor in the midst of the storm. And thank you for the opportunity just to see your faithfulness to Paul both um, there in Caesarea and then on his journey to Rome. And I pray as we look at this passage and as we listen to uh, the interactions that are had between Paul and the sailors that you would just help us to learn to trust you. And to walk hand in hand with you and to look to you as our deliverer, as our help, as our hope in the midst of whatever difficulties we might be facing even today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, as most of you know, on April the 15th, 1912, approximately at 2.20 a.m., the stern of the white star liner Titanic swung slowly upward towards the stars, Her lights went out, flashed on again, and then went out for good. And as the stern of the Titanic reached higher, a steady roar thundered across the water as every movable thing broke loose and slid down the deck towards the water's surface. As the bow of the ship was now completely submerged, the stern rose even higher. The The Titanic was now almost absolutely vertical with her three dripping propellers glistening in the moonlight. For nearly two minutes she stood poised as the noise finally stopped. Then the unsinkable ship began sinking slowly until completely under and the sea had swallowed her whole with one final gulp. Hitting an iceberg less than three hours earlier proved to be more than this ocean liner could handle, claiming the lives of 1,500 people, the sinking of the Titanic has been often remembered as one of the most tragic shipwrecks in history. And it wasn't until 1985 that an expedition was able to reach the shipwreck on the bottom of the ocean floor and discovered that she had been split in half. The stern section was found to be almost completely crumbled, whereas the bow is in much better condition, with some of the interiors incredibly intact. Hundreds of artifacts have been evacuated from the shipwreck and can be viewed at various expositions around the world, including tableware, furniture, and even menus. And a wreck of this kind of proportion is a a terrifying experience. And we could really say a wreck of any amount is a terrifying experience, whether it be a train derailment or an automobile collision or a plane crash. And some would argue that the most terrifying of all would be the shipwreck because of the prolonged agony that the passengers and the crew endure. And Acts 27 is the tale of the most famous shipwreck in biblical history, that of the Apostle Paul on his way to Rome. And it is also one of the best told, most detailed shipwreck accounts in ancient history and certainly the most profitable for us to hear this morning as it is recorded in the living Word of God. Paul was mature in his walk with Christ, but he was still being shaped through his trials. We are often object-oriented, but God is process-oriented. And we just want to get to Rome, but God will determine when we get there and how we get there. And storms can reveal a person's character very quickly. And the imminent threat of death during this shipwreck revealed the secrets of each man's character, and Paul was head and shoulders above them all. Are you in a storm this morning? Does it look like your ship is about to go under? If so, you need an anchor for the soul in the midst of the storm. You you need an anchor of God's presence who will never leave you or forsake you, and you need the anchor of God's wisdom so that you can be rooted and grounded in God's Word. You need the anchor of Jesus Christ who alone can rescue you, not only from your trials in life, but also from the horrors of eternal punishment in hell. So this morning... As we work our way through Acts 27, I want to give you three headings that will outline this chapter as we especially look at Paul's example of being a faithful leader, an incredible witness, and a fantastic encourager during an extremely dangerous time. Number one, we're going to look at the sailors Number two, we're going to talk a little bit more about the storm, and then number three, we'll obviously see the shipwreck. And so let's start with number one, the sailors, verses one through 12. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning in that outline, says the departure from Caesarea. The departure from Caesarea. Now this Chapter, chapter 27 of Acts presents a thrilling saga of the apostles' voyage from Caesarea to Malta, which is where they're going to be shipwrecked, all in their route to Rome. And if Paul had not been a passenger, we would not even have known about this particular trip or even about this shipwreck. This chapter is full of nautical terms and it's somewhat difficult to follow because of our unfamiliarity of this geographical location. And so I'm going to read one verse or a couple of verses at a time and try to give some brief commentary so that we don't totally get lost. Think of this as being a little bit more, again, of an overview than a deep dive on every single detail of every verse. And so with that said, verse 1 says this, And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul. And some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. So here we read again about the journey it began there at Caesarea where Paul had been on trial as we've been looking at chapters 25 and 26 and he had been in custody now for a little bit over two years and at the end of chapter 6, 26, last week we looked at how Agrippa and Festus had come to the conclusion that while they knew Paul had done nothing deserving of death or really even of imprisonment, they were deciding in Paul's honor Based on his appeal to Rome, that they would uh, send him to Caesar, and indeed to Caesar he should go. And so Paul was then placed in the custody, as verse 1 says here, of an officer named Julius. This centurion was attached to the Augustan regiment, which was known as a distinguished legion of the Roman army. And like all the other centurions mentioned in the New Testament, he was a man, this guy Julius, was a man of superior character. And kindness and justice and consideration. The, the decency that Rome lacked in their politicians was often offset by the character of the officers that they had in their army. Verse 2: the embarking in a ship of Adramatum, which was about to sail to the ports along the coasts of Asia, we put to sea accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. And so, as we see here in verse 2, there were some other prisoners on the ship as well. Paul's not the only one, and they're also being taken to Rome for trial. In uh, this passenger, we see the name of Aristarchus, which would be a traveling companion of Paul. He might have traveled with him on an earlier journey. Later, we can read about how he'll be attending uh, Paul while he's there in Rome. Please note, too, in verse 1 and verse 2, it says we. We have that pronoun when it was decided that we should sell, verse 1, and that that he was accompanied, um, of which they were accompanied, we put to sea, the middle of verse 2. That's an indication that Luke is now joined back up. He was not necessarily mentioned uh, during his stay in Caesarea, but Luke is now back on the ship together with Aristarchus, and they're heading out now towards Italy. And the ship on which they embarked was from a city that was there on the northwest corner of Asia Minor, and it was scheduled to sail north and west, making stops at ports along the western shore of what would be known as present-day Turkey. Aristarchus, again, was there with him. It was mentioned as well in Colossians 4.10, and in in Philemon, verse 24, mentions a little bit about Aristarchus as well. The next blank there in your outline says the delay in fair havens. There is a delay as they're traveling there in fair havens. Look at verse 3. Verse 3 says, the next day we put in at Sidon and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and to be cared for. So there we see the kindness, again, of this centurion, Julius. Here the ship had sailed north along the coast of Israel, and then it put in at Sidon, which was about 70 miles north of Caesarea. And Julius here, again, kindly permits Paul to go ashore to visit his friends and to receive some care. And so there was most likely a church that had been planted there during the time of the exodus of a lot of Christians from Jerusalem around Acts chapter 8. And so some of the believers that were there in Sidon uh, apparently knew about Paul, wanted to minister to him. And so Paul had received some encouragement from these dear saints, as well as most likely some provisions for his journey. And verses 4 and 5 says, and putting out to sea from there, We sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us, and when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra at Lycia. So there's some more, lots of names, right, of this area that we're not super familiar with. But from Sidon, just north of Israel, the route cut across the northwest corner of the Mediterranean Sea passing Cyprus that we've heard about before, remember that was Paul's first stop on his first missionary journey, and seeking to take advantage of the side of the island that would have been sheltered from the wind, they're traveling in a way that would be most advantageous for their trip. In spite of the winds that were being contrary to their direction, the ship did cross over that southern coast of Asia Minor. Paul's ship sailed westward past Cilicia and Pamphylia till it arrived at Myra, which was a port city of Lycia. These verses highlight for us, just the difficulty of sailing in the ancient world, right? You didn't have a steamboat. You didn't have these massive engines, right? You're sailing by the wind, and you're sailing somewhat by currents. And so we see here as they're sailing east to west in the Mediterranean, most likely it would have been the the time of year of late summer or early fall. At this point, if you look at verse 6, Verse 6, it says there was a centurion, uh, excuse me, there the centurion um, found the ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. So while they're there in Myra, the centurion transferred those prisoners that we discussed to another ship a bigger ship, you know, they'd kind of been on a coastal vessel that was kind of trickling up the coast and around Cyprus a little bit, and then it was going to probably head back to its port, but this second ship, the one from Alexandria, was, was a much larger ship, and it had sailed directly from the northern coast of Africa, and later we read that this ship contains 276 people, as well as our cargo of wheat. And so again, from Alexandria, it came due north across the heart of the Mediterranean Sea to Myra and now was headed west for Rome. And so we got Paul, Luke, Aristarchus, and the centurion Julius, along with the crew and the other passengers were all on board. Look at verses 7 and 8. It says that we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Nidus, And as the wind did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salome. Uh, Coasting along with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, which was near the city of Lassia. Sorry for my pronunciation, but at least they got Fair Havens right, okay? They're heading to Fair Havens. That's where they're going to hang out for a little bit, and so we'll talk about verses 7 and 8. For for many days of travel, uh, it it was slow due to the adverse winds, and it was difficult, but the crew was able to kind of against the harbor of Nidus there, which was a port uh, on the extreme southwestern corner of Asia Minor, and since the wind was against them, they headed south and sailed along the shelter along the east side of the island of Crete. They rounded Cape Salome, and they turned west and bucked the heavy winds until they came there to Fair Havens. Sounds like a lovely harbor, but we're going to find they're not going to stay here long. It was near Lassia, this, on the uh, south uh, central coast of Crete. Let's move on. Verses 9 through 12. Your next blank, if you're taking notes again, says, "...the decision to continue toward Phoenix." the decision to continue toward Phoenix, verses 9 and 10. Since much time had passed, the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over. Paul advised them, saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. And so by now, considerable time had been lost due to the unfavorable winds and sailing conditions. And so verse 9 says, since much time had passed, they had been in fair havens for a little bit longer than they wanted to, to be there. As we understand the the sailing of the Mediterranean Sea as the year gets later and later past end of summer early fall into winter you wouldn 't really sell at all between like october and end of October and early February because those would be the winter months of lots of storms so what they 're trying to do is get into Italy before all that hits, and so they 're hanging out and and um and uh, fair havens, uh, we, we get a date of the, the feast or that fast was probably referring to the Day of Atonement, which was already over again, most likely would have taken place sometime in October. And so at this point, Paul warns the crew that if any further navigation was, was un, uh, you know gonna happen, it would be unsafe. And if that voyage were to continue, there would be the risk of losing the cargo and the ship and possibly even the lives on board. So Paul, he's a prisoner He's not a sailor. Remember, he's a tent maker by trade, but he's got enough common sense to say to them and maybe even a premonition from the Lord himself that it would be dangerous for them to continue. But what do you think they did? Verse 11 and 12, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. Well, of course, they're going to talk to the seafaring experts. These marine um, sailors would know more how to get there safely. And so the owner of the ship was willing to take that risk for the loss of ship and cargo. And so verse 12, and because the harbor was not suitable there in Fair Havens to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete, facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So again, neglecting to heed Paul's advice, the pilot and the owner of the ship wanted to proceed, and the centurion accepted their judgment, and most of the others agreed with them too. And it was felt that the harbor there at Fairhavens was not a suitable harbor to spend the winter. And the, the harbor in Phoenix must have been much nicer, a little bit maybe even safer. Phoenix was located about 40 miles from Fairhavens on the southwest tip of Crete in its harbor, was known to be advantageous for winter conditions, and some have suggested that they must have had nicer amenities as well because the sailors may not have wanted to stay in Fair Havens as much as they wanted to stay there for the winter in Phoenix. Now, if you'll look back for a moment at verse 10, again it says, Paul says, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss. Now remember after this point everything Paul says comes true. He's an accurate historian of what happened in his own testimony and everything that, that he's ever talked about comes true. It sounds kind of like a prophecy and whether it was a true prophecy or again just a premonition of danger Paul had experienced three shipwrecks and according to the 2nd Corinthians 11:25 he describes what it was like to be on those shipwrecks and so Paul while he's a prisoner not a sailor is certainly speaking from experience in fact the greek word there in verse 10 where he says i perceive that word perceive means to perceive from past experience and however that the men in charge again gave little value to Paul's warning and so they made their decision that we're going to find out they would certainly live to regret. And so now that we've read a lot about the shipping route and the geography of the area, let's look at number two this morning. Number two in our outline, the storm, verses 13 to 26. And your next uh, blank there is the word helpless. They're helpless in the hands of men. We're helpless in the hands of men. Verse 13. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. So here's their moment, right? The south wind, usually a warmer wind, that was a gentle wind, not a cold northern wind, but a southern, uh, slow, uh, softly blowing wind. They thought, this this, this has got to be it. We can hop on the ship right now, head out, make it to Phoenix. It's not that far. We'll hug the shoreline along the way. This breeze, it must be a good sign. And so they, they pulled in anchor, and they sailed westward, hugging the shore, and then it happened. Verses 14 and 15, but soon a a tempestuous wind called a northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. And so this tempestuous wind uh, was most likely, what they called a northeaster, was uh, most likely a typhoon or some type of tropical storm. For all we know, it could have been a hurricane of monstrous proportions. And the scripture here throughout this chapter talks about how the storm beat down on them from the cliffs along the coast. And they were unable to steer their desired course. The crew had no option, but they were just forced to let the ship be driven by the gale. Verse 16 Running under the lee of a small island called Calda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, verse 17, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. So verses 16 and 17, we're we're reading here about they were driven southwest to a small island called Calda or Clauda, and and the footnote there you see it could be either one, and they're some 20 miles away from Crete, and when they reached the, the protected side of the island, they had difficulty securing the skiff which they had been towing, which here in these verses is called the ship's boat when it says the ship's boat, that's referring to a skiff or a little boat, which they would take from the bigger boat to land. And so when they were finally able to host that ship's boat or that skiff on board, they then tied cables around the hull or the bottom of the ship in order to keep it from being torn apart by the heavy seas in a procedure that sailors call frapping. So they, they greatly feared that they would be driven south to Sirtis, which was a gulf town on the north coast of Africa that was noted for its dangerous sandbars. And since that area of the northern coast of Africa was also known as a graveyard for ships, they desperately wanted to avoid it at all costs. And so verse 16 talks about, and 17 talks about, in order to do so, they, they lowered uh, into the sea the anchor. Which they would use to kind of drag across the bottom to give them a little bit of ability to keep the ship from drifting further south where it would be disastrous. And so the phrase lowered the gear could also have recurred to lowering the mainsail, which would otherwise have been torn to shreds by the violent wind. Most likely, both of these actions would be their best chance of survival, but it just keeps getting worse. Verses 18 and 19 tell us that since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their hands. And so after a day of drifting, we're reading here, at the mercy of the storm, they began to throw cargo overboard. On the third day, They threw the ship's tackle overboard, these verses say, which would have been really any miscellaneous, equipment not crucial to sailing the ship. And at this point, the ship had surely taken on a lot of water, meaning that in areas of the ship, water was seeping in and therefore necessary to lighten its load to prevent it from seeking. They began to get rid of some cargo, not all cargo, because we're going to read later, they're going to eat some of the wheat that's still there, but they start to get rid of some of the cargo. And then in verse 20, Look at verse 20. It says, when neither, sun, um, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest lay on us, the hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So at this point, they've reached the end of their rope. They're like, hey, there's no way we can be saved at this point. We, we have no hope. I mean, for many days, they were tossed about helplessly without any sight of the sun and without any sight of the stars at night. And in these conditions, there's no way to navigate or to even steer the ship. I mean, they can't see where they're going. They can't see the stars as we know they would navigate Uh, even in today's world you can still navigate with the stars uh, overhead and so they they couldn't they couldn't even do it if they wanted to because they couldn't see anything and so the hope of survival was finally abandoned they felt completely helpless and and the inevitable seemed to be becoming a reality surely they were about to die in this violent storm And I just wonder, if, as you read through this, have you ever been there in your own life? You're in a predicament, you're in a situation, and you just feel like if something doesn't give way, I'm just going to die. I'm not going to be able to make it out. Have you ever been in so deep that you are over your head and you can't touch bottom? I mean, that was like the scariest thing for me as a kid when I was first learning to swim. Are you ready to swim across the deep end? Because when you go across the deep end and you can't touch bottom, you're like, you're out there on your own. And this is how they're feeling at this moment. We are out here on our own, and we can't can't find the land. We can't see the stars. What is going on? Have you ever been there in your life when you don't know what to do, and then fear began to grip your heart? Well, what did you do? Well, these next verses show us the tremendous encouragement that Paul gives these sailors. Your next blank there says, hopeful in the hand of God. They're helpless in the hands of men because the owner of the ship and the captain of the ship is not going to be able to save them. But there's hope in the hand of God. Your next blank after that one, number one, says Paul provided great encouragement. Paul provided great encouragement. Look at verses 21 and 22. It says, since they had abandoned or excuse me, since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no uh, no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Partly encouraging, right? Hey, we're going down, the ship, we're going to lose it, but God's going to spare your life. That's certainly encouraging, right? The despair of the sailors had overcome them at this point and even prevented them from being able to eat. The men had spent all of their time working for the preservation of the ship and, and bailing out water. And perhaps there were no facilities for cooking uh, and, and there was, there was not uh, the, the, the applic- appetite to eat. There, there was sickness, there was fear, discouragement probably set in. There was no shortage of food because they still have enough wheat. But at this moment, they just can't eat. I mean, have you ever been so seasick, that, so miserable? I mean, these, these sailors were, uh, I could sympathize, I've been on a boat once or twice where I started to feel just a little bit seasick. I haven't been bad seasick, but I heard about a woman one time who became so seasick while out on a day-long sport fishing boat that she staggered to the captain holding out the keys of her new car and said, you can have it if you'll just turn this ship around and take us back to shore. You know, I mean, sometimes it could be that miserable, right? Just turn around, get us out of here. And so the plight of Paul and his friends was a thousand times worse. This isn't some recreational fishing trip where you get a little woozy. This is in the midst of this storm, a typhoon, tropical storm, or a hurricane. And so at this point, Paul stood up in the midst of them and and he gave a message of hope. And first, he, he did gently remind them that they should not have sailed from Crete. So he is reminding them, hey guys, I warned you not to do this, but he doesn't berate them too long because then he assured them that though the ship would be lost, there would be no loss of life. And I love the word that Paul gives here. He says, take heart. That's something that we read many times in the scripture, take heart. It means to cheer up, to take courage, literally means it it means to be encouraged and so Paul, in the midst of this predicament, is offering, offering hope and encouragement. It's the same thing that Jesus said to his disciples in John 16, right before Jesus was going to be arrested and then taken uh, to the cross, he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace, in the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. So we... We could say that Paul here is learning from the Lord Jesus, even though he wasn't there at that moment of John 16 33, but he's still learning from that same understanding of, you know, we got to take heart and we got to overcome the world. We can do it in God's power for his glory. And, and the question may be, well, how could they take Paul seriously? I mean, they've been, they've been a, a, in the midst of the storm and all of a sudden he's like, take heart? How, how could they believe that what Paul was saying was true? You know, sometimes. Truly trusting and resting in God's omnipresence and in his omniscience and in his omnipotence can be tough. But if we can learn to trust God by faith, then that will enable us to be men and women of courage and even give us the ability to shout out words of encouragement to others above the storm. Let's look at verses 23 24. Your next blank says, Paul praised God for his revelation. Paul praised God for his revelation, verses 23 and 24. So Paul's going to now say, hey, this is why we can take hope. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar and behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So in these two verses, we read about, again, an angel of the Lord that appeared to him that very night. And this angel of God stood before Paul to give assurance. And notice what Paul emphasizes here. He didn't speak of the God of the heavens and the earth or of the God of providence or of the God who rules over the seas the words that Paul uses is that he said that he heard directly from the God to whom he belongs. You see that? It's the God whom I belong. I belong to him. This is typical of Paul that throughout his epistles, he wrote a lot about divine ownership. If The fact that God is, we know he is, Lord over the, the earth, right? In Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof and the world and those who dwell therein. And from the standpoint of creation, God owns it all. But beyond that, Paul spoke of redemption and a special sense of ownership in First Corinthians 6.20 when he says that you were bought with a price. So God owns it all. God, I mean, God owns you if you're in Christ, of course. And then Paul began his letter to the Romans in Romans 1.1. 1, 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus I think the point that Paul's trying to make is that he doesn't belong ultimately to mankind. He doesn't belong ultimately to creation. He doesn't belong ultimately to the sea. He belongs to God. And he's just reminding them in that very moment, I belong to God. A sense of belonging is vital for us to understand, to be able to really overcome fear and despair. You see, when you know that you belong to God and that our God is mighty and that he's great, that no matter what situation you're in, you start to feel a little bit more comfort. I I, I belong to him. He's my father. He's my protector. He's my shield and my defender because I belong to him. Paul says here, not only do I belong to him, but this is the God whom I worship, This is the God whom I I pay homage to. This is whom I offer sacrifices to. This is whom I present my offerings to in, in the midst of the trial and in the midst of his hardship and in the midst of his unknown situation of what exactly will happen next. Paul is saying, I just want to worship God. I want to remind you, I belong to him and I worship him. I exalt him. I want to sing to him and to worship him. Certainly this would remind us of Job's response back in chapter 1, where he lost all that he had, and he lost all of his animals on the ranch, and he lost his kids when they they died. And at the end of that chapter, it says, as you well know, in Job 1.20, then Job arose, and he tore his robe, and he shaved his head, and he fell to the ground and worshiped. He fell to the ground and he worshiped. I mean, you would think it would be appropriate for Job at that point to cry out to God or to express grief, which there is a time to to rejoice and a time to grieve. And yet in this moment, Job fell down and worshiped. And it's almost like Paul is reminding us of that same understanding that in your worst trial on your darkest day, that the things that we got to do is just be reminded, hey, I belong to him and I'm here to worship him. May, May we be seeking to worship God in the midst of our trials. And what exactly was it that the angel said to Paul? He said to him, "Do not be afraid, Paul. Why? Because the angel says, "You must stand before Caesar." Remember when Paul was first brought to Caesarea after leaving Jerusalem in acts 23:11 the Lord Jesus showed up to him. It says so in acts 23:11 the following night, the Lord stood by him and said, "Take courage, for as you have been." testifying to the facts about me in Jerusalem so you must also testify about me in Rome. So the angels reminding him of what Jesus had already said to him which was you can be encouraged because whether you're in a prison cell or out on the boat in the middle of the Mediterranean you're going to be going to Rome and you're going to testify about the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ there to the emperor in Rome. So take heart, be encouraged. Not only will this prophecy And this promise be fulfilled, but God is also now making it clear that he's granting the lives of these sailors with Paul as well. You know, sometimes God blesses unbelievers because of the righteous. And sometimes God's blessings In a difficult marriage or in a difficult relationship with a wayward child or even in a difficult country that's gone off the rails, sometimes God's blessings still come to those organizations, those entities. They come through the promises that God has made to the righteous. So they get to share in a little bit of the recipients of what God's doing in sparing Paul's life because God's making it clear through the angel that he's also going to spare the lives of all of these sailors. And then your next blank says number 3 Paul pointed to his faith in God versus 25 and 26 Paul pointed to his faith in God he says again here in verse 25 so take heart men for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told but we must run aground on some island so again he's being very real with them hey you're going to be saved but we're about to run aground on some island somewhere so Paul again take heart or be encouraged Paul says I have faith that God will do exactly what he said he will do. And even though we're gonna run aground on some island, our lives will be spared. So at this point, God is now holding God's character up and he's holding up his faith in this God whom he belongs to and whom he worships. And he saying, hey, God's not gonna lie to us. If this is what the angel said, it will come true. We know from Numbers chapter 23, verse 19, it says, God is not a man that he should lie nor the son of a man, that he should change his mind. Has he said it and he will not do it? Or has he spoken and he will not fulfill it? In other words, for the Christian, of course we ought to have faith that God's gonna do exactly what he said that he will do. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. Now in that passage, he's talking about if God raised Jesus from the dead, which he did, then all the promises that God makes anywhere in the scriptures will come true. The the case in point is the resurrection came true. That means all the other promises that God made will come true. So we can have faith in the Lord that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. Faith is mentioned as part of the armor of the soldier of God, right? In Ephesians 6, 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. The temptation is doubt comes in, fear comes in, arguments against God's word come in, but we're to take up the shield of faith which, which we can extinguish all the flaming arrows or the darts of the evil one. Satan's trying to tempt us to despair, and yet we know God is telling Paul here he will deliver him and the other sailors all the way to Rome. Reminds us as well of Psalm 23, Right? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. These are great reminders to us today that God is still with us in the midst of the storm. That he is our comfort and our rock Remember, again, Christ had already made this known to him a little bit earlier, and this was an unconditional promise, that Paul would go to Rome, make no doubt about it. However, God did not promise smooth sailing along the way. You see, sometimes we see the promises of God, and we reach out and grab them, but we forget that sometimes to obtain those promises, we still go through some pain. And we still go through some suffering and it can be a little bit difficult to get there because that's just the reality of life. He promised to fulfill his promises, but he never promised smooth sailing along the way. As we serve Christ, there will be storms and there will be hardships and there will be shipwrecks. But there'll also be peace and there'll be assurance and there'll be fruitfulness and faithfulness of the sustaining grace and presence of God all along the way. Matthew 14 records the story of when Jesus came walking on the water to his disciples on the stormy Sea of Galilee when their ship was about to sink. And they were in danger precisely because they were following the orders of Jesus. You see, just earlier, Jesus had told them to go out onto the lake or the Sea of Galilee, and they obeyed. And when they went out there, there was a tempest or a storm that came upon them. And then they saw Jesus walking across the water. And we know how encouraging that story was as Peter recognized Christ for who he was. And when he got out of the boat, he was able to walk on the water, even though it was still stormy. And yet at that moment when he took his eyes off of Christ is when he began to sink. We're just saying that in the storm, Jesus is there and we can still look to him. And those who claim that following Jesus will always somehow just have the smooth sailing without the choppy waters. They are misunderstanding and misrepresenting the word of God. F.B. Meyer, well-known commentator from many years ago, wrote on this verse, quote, if I am told that I am to take a journey that is a dangerous trip, every jolt along the way will remind me that I am on the right road. So instead of thinking like, oh, this is tough. I must be in the wrong way. He's like, look, if I know this is the course God has set and I'm on this course, then every single jolt and bump on the road, then that just kind of confirms that I'm doing the right thing because I'm doing what God's called me to do. And it's not always going to be easy. On another note, there was a storm on this same sea in the Old Testament centuries earlier when Jonah had no such faith. It was Jonah on the same sea in a similar type storm, and he didn't have faith in God. His anchor at that moment was not in God. In fact, he refused to serve God. And in contrast to Paul's witness to his Gentile associates, Paul's giving them encouragement, Jonah was more reproved by the ship's crew, all those who are Christ's who consciously serve him best they can experience sustaining assurance and this is one of God's gracious gifts to the obedient and Paul knew it to the fullest. I guess I'm just kind of saying are you like Jonah on the ship or are you more like Paul on the ship? With Jonah they threw him off. With Paul he's like stay on and you're going to make it and we want to have that kind of faith and Christ had warned his disciples again that they would face trials but he also assured them that, they would, that he would be right there with them. And so this record of Paul's shipwreck in this chapter is intriguing history, but it is also a general picture and a gentle reminder of what all Christians experience in their voyage throughout life. With Paul's encouragement and with the hopeful hand of God at play, the stage is now set for the dramatic conclusion to this ill-fated voyage And the fulfillment of God's promises. But to find out what happened, you'll have to wait. No, I'm just kidding. Here we go. Number three, the shipwreck. The shipwreck, verses 27 through the end of the chapter. Your next blank says, the final despair. The final despair, verses 27 through 29. We'll start there. When the 14th night had come, and as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea about midnight, the sailors suspected that they were nearing land. So they took a sounding and they found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down the four or they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. I don't know about you, but as I'm reading this, I, I think sometimes about the number of bumper stickers that I've read. I'd rather be sailing. Ever read that one, I'd Rather Be Sailing? That's a great hobby, Hobby, as we know, for many sea lovers who can't resist the exhilaration of skimming across the water in a beautiful sailing vessel pushed along by the silent power of the wind. And captains love the challenge of harnessing nature's energy and equally enjoy the, the all peaceful isolation of the open water. But I have never read a bumper sticker that said, I'd rather be shipwrecked. We like the sailing part, we don't like the shipwreck part, and unfortunately this is exactly where these sailors are heading. This text says 14 days had eclipsed since they left Fair Havens, and they're now drifting helplessly in a part of the Mediterranean Sea known as the Ionian, that part of the sea between Greece, Italy, and North Africa. And so it was at about midnight that the sailors sensed that they were drawing near some land. Perhaps they could hear the breakers dashing against the shore. And so they measured the depth by probably putting a rope out with a weight on it. And they measured 20 fathoms, which is about 120 feet. And then they did it again for 15 fathoms, which is about 90 feet. So they know they're approaching some island or the shore of some some And so in order to prevent the ship from running aground, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight look at verses 30 through 32 and as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under the pretense of laying out anchors from the bow Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers unless these men stay in the ship you cannot be saved then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go So what's happening in these verses? Well, fearing for their lives, some of the sailors plotted to get ashore on that small skiff which had been hoisted up on deck earlier. And they were in the process of lowering that boat from the bow of the ship, pretending that they were just putting out some more anchors. And then Paul saw what was going on, and so he warns them that unless these sailors remained on board, the rest would not be saved. And so at this point, the soldiers cut away the ropes attached to that skiff, and they let it fall off. And the sailors were then compelled to try to save their own lives on board the ship as well as the lives of the others. Verses thirty three and thirty-four says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for it is not for not a hair is to perish from your head of any of you. So here Paul demonstrates good physical stewardship of the body as well as sturdy common sense, right? To appreciate the drama of the moment as well, we should know that in the middle of the storm, just be reminded, Paul's not the captain of the ship, but at this moment, he kind of starts acting like the captain and everybody's listening to him. He's the one that has common sense of things to say, and encouraged them to take some food. And so, shortly after daybreak, he implores the sailors to eat, reminding them that they've now been two weeks without food. The time had come for them to eat. Their well-being depended on it. The apostle assured them that not a hair of anyone's head would be lost. Acts 27:35 says, "And when he had laid, when he had said these things, he took bread and giving thanks." To God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Again, Paul's kind of like a picture of Christ here. I'm not saying like literally, but I'm just saying it. You know, we can just see in the midst of the storm, Jesus was calm. Jesus broke bread and fed it to the disciples. Paul's breaking bread, giving it to those around them. He's just following in the footsteps of his Lord. He's giving thanks. He's doing that publicly. How we need to be willing to even in a difficult moment to pray. You know, if you're in the middle of an emergency, let's pray. My, my wife and I, years ago, had an emergency situation, and the nurses are there, the doctors are there. We're just praying. We're just praying out loud. We're reading Psalms and we're praying and we're talking. I don't care if they hear me or not. I, you know, sometimes I'm like, let's just pray in quiet over here. And there's other times, just like, we're praying. You can either join us or not, but this is what we're doing. Because we're in, a, we're in need of God's help. And so Paul's just praying, he's eating. How often we sometimes shrink from praying in front of others, but that sometimes is a great testimony of a faith that's rooted in God. Prayer sometimes speaks louder than preaching. So I like the fact Paul's praying, giving thanks, verses 36 and 37. Then all were encouraged. They see Paul pray, they see Paul eat, they're all encouraged. And so what do they do? They eat some food for themselves. We were in all 276 um, persons in the ship. So the sailors here obviously are encouraged. They took food for themselves. And then in verse 38, when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the weed into the sea. So after eating, they lightened the ship by throwing the rest of the weed out into the sea. At this point, they know the time had come for them to take that nourishment, to be physically strengthened, to face what comes next. And your next blank says the first signs of delivery the first signs of delivery verses 39 through 41 now when it was day they did not recognize the land but they noticed a bay with a beach on which they planned if possible to run the ship ashore so they cast off the anchors and left them in the sea and at the same time loosening the ropes that tied the rudders then hoisting the foresail to the wind they made for the beach But striking a reef, they ran the vessel aground. The bow struck and remained immovable, and the stern was being broken up by the surf. So in these verses, they're saying, hey, we see the land. It's clear enough that we can see. We've had our meal. Let's just make it for the beach. Let's see what happens. Let's, Let's get there. They didn't recognize the land. We'll find out it's the Isle of Malta in our next time together. But the decision was made to beach the ship, and so they they let go of the anchors, they hoisted the sail, they run straight in, uh, they, they used their rudders in the main sail, they made for shore, drove the ship aground at a place where two seas met, arguably, or probably, in a channel between two islands. The bow, or the bow, excuse me, struck fast in the sand, and the stern soon began to break apart by the violence of the waves. Verses 42. To the end of the chapter, the soldier's plan was to kill the prisoners, lest any should swim away and escape. But the centurion, wishing to save Paul, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and make for the land and the rest on planks or on pieces of the ship. And so it was that all were brought safely to land. A soldier's plan, kill the prisoners. Because if you were a Roman soldier, you know that the consequence was if a prisoner escaped, it would be your life for his life. So they're just going to kill the prisoners. But the centurion, being a man of common sense himself and reasonable character, wanted to save Paul... And the prisoners. And so he overruled the sailors. And he ordered that all who could swim to just make for shore. They're close enough. And the rest were told to float on boards or other parts of the ship. And this way, everyone of the crew and the passengers escaped safely to land. You know what we learn here? All happened just as God had promised. They lost the ship, but every single person was saved. God's power and his providence always prevail and he triumphed and as God triumphs his glory was on display and so as we have read this chapter again we can't help but ask are are you in a storm what does that look like in in your life as your ship is about to go under if if so and we all have faced many storms in our lives then we need to take some anchors don't we and so in this take home section of the sermon we got the anchor first the first one is the anchor of God's presence Just remember as you reflect on on this chapter that he's right there with you in every situation. Paul said that this angel stood before him, an angel of God representing the divine presence of God right there with Paul. You know, it doesn't matter if you're on dry land or out in the open sea, and it doesn't matter if you're 30,000 feet in the air or sitting safely in your home, and it doesn't matter if you're in war-blasted Israel or you're in a safe haven. God's presence is with you, and ultimately, that's all that we need. I have God. I belong to him. That's your second bullet point there, the anchor of God's ownership. Remember, in those moments, not only is God's presence there, but that he owns you. You've you got to have that conviction and that reminder of, I'm worshiping him to whom I belong. I, I belong to him. I'm, I'm God's possession. We belong to him. We are his. He he owns us. He created us. He loves us. And if you're in Christ this morning, he's recreated you in Christ, and that means that he'll never leave you or forsake you. And So there's that ownership mentality of, to him I belong. And then, of course, we saw the anchor of God-given faith, God-given faith, where Paul says, again, take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. It will be exactly as I have been told. Is your faith that strong? Is your faith so strong that you know no matter what, even when it's not looking good and everybody else is running around like a chicken with their head cut off, you say, you know, I believe in God. He's going to protect us and provide for us. If it's not here, it's in eternity. I know we can be forgiven. I know that we can find a safe place when we reach the other shore. That might be heaven at times, as we're talking about, but even on the way there and on the journey there, no matter how rough it gets, God never abandons us. And so with anchors like these, God's servants will stand strong and true. If you're here this morning and you don't have that anchor for the soul, as we close with our last song, we'll have a few people standing right over here by this door and we'd love to talk to you about how you can have an anchor for the soul in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that no matter what kind of fear you're facing or kind of storm you're in this morning, whether it be great or small, it would be our joy to serve you and to pray for you and come alongside you. That's who we want to be as a church. And so as we close this morning, may we continue to set our eyes on Christ and be encouraged with the promises that he makes, knowing that we have an anchor in the storm. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the blessed assurance of knowing that we've been saved by grace, through faith in the gospel, if you've granted repentance and faith, that we would believe in you and walk with you and, and obey you. And I pray, God, that as we think about this storm and the shipwreck of Paul and his companions, we would also be reminded of your faithfulness and your providence and your protection. And God, forgive us sometimes for just wanting to get there with, without any problems and just wanting the smooth water to the degree that sometimes it might be an idol for us. Help us rather to say, God, however we get there, whenever we arrive, we trust you. We love you. and We know that your wisdom is greater than our wisdom and that your ways are higher than our ways. And your thoughts are much more um, inclined to divine truth than our thoughts could ever be. And so we want to walk by faith and not by sight. And I pray for that one today who may be out in the middle of the storm at this very moment, that they would draw strength and courage from seeing Paul his resolve and his statement of take heart and that we would be encouraged and take heart if nothing else than based on what Jesus said in this world you will have tribulations but take heart for I have overcome the world. May we find our rest in you, our hope in you and may you be our anchor and that we would hold firmly to your truth to the person of Jesus Christ and it's in his name we pray, amen.